Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new every day. We need them every day. We pray as we open your word this morning that we would see very clearly your grace and your mercy, even in things that we don't fully understand. Father, we know that you're a God who makes good on his promises, particularly the promise of salvation that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. It doesn't come through our effort, but it comes through the promise of his shed blood on a cross for our sin. And so, Lord, help us trust you this morning as we open your word. Help us learn from your word. Help us be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In our family, we have really two rounds of Christmas. The first round is at the house, and the second round is after Christmas. As a ministry family, we usually stay put for Christmas, and then after Christmas, we go see family or they come here. And I have three kids, and all of them are in double digits now, and so they don't ask uh, for a lot of things. They just ask for money. They just ask for gift cards, and so we've gone through that. That's in many ways glorious for us. It hurts as they get older to do that, and so we just went through the second round of Christmas, and so we came back home from grandparents and cousins with a lot of gift cards, and so last week was our second round, and what it looked like was getting on Amazon. Why Amazon? Well, for my kids, Amazon, there's this wide selection of things that they could get, um, and they can also get those things relatively fast. For us as parents and grandparents and cousins, it's free shipping, right? Free shipping. There's a number of things that are benefits to Amazon. This thing comes packaged already as well. But it's also something else, and I will say it this way. It's trust because Amazon delivers. They deliver. They do what they say they're going to do. And even when they don't, you can send it back and get something else. They deliver. But here's the thing. After my kids order that thing, whatever that thing is, you know the drill, mom and dad, if you've been there. What do they say? When's it going to get here? How fast is it going to get here? Can you show me the tracking number? Amazon is great too because it lets you know where the package is. It lets you know it delivers the package. Spend way too much money on Amazon. But here's the spiritual truth. God delivers. He delivers. He does what He says He's going to do. He always does what He says He's going to do. But there's a tension, isn't there? There's a tension because He doesn't give you a tracking number. He doesn't give you a tracking number. He doesn't show you when it's going to arrive. You have to trust by faith that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Have you ever felt that tension? Maybe you're feeling and living in that tension right now. I know God promises this. And here's the line from here to whenever that comes about. But I don't see it. It doesn't look like a line. It doesn't look like a linear line. It looks like a spaghetti line. Or maybe the line looks like it's going somewhere else completely. Because God's plans and his purposes don't have a tracking number, and we have to trust by faith, and that's difficult. Have you ever wondered if God has lost that thing? You ever wondered if he's forgotten you, where you're at? You ever had the questions and doubted, like, how could this be a part of your plan for me, that sickness? 
that lost relationship, that lost job, the thing that you thought was going to happen, happened very differently? We wonder. We wonder about the purposes, the mysterious purposes of God, the mysterious plans of God, and maybe you have deep hurts and pains from that. But listen, God will deliver on his stated promises and purposes. And I say stated promises and purposes because oftentimes we put a whole bunch of things on God that aren't on God. We want them to be. They're expectations that we have for God, but they're not stated promises or purposes for our lives. But God will deliver on his promises and purposes. Turn with me to Romans 11. Romans 11, page 946, there's in the Bible around you. Um, we're going to look at the purposes and the promises that God has made. And those promises that we're looking about at here, at least in that time, had not come about. So these are future promises from the perspective of Paul in Romans 11. It's been a number of weeks. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in Romans. We've been working through the book of Romans. We stopped for the Advent season, did an Advent series. And so it's been about a month. So as we come back into Romans 11, let's remember some things about this amazing book of Romans. Romans 1 through 8 lays out really, really clearly that we've all sinned. We all sinned. We all missed the mark and we fall short of God. All of us. The tidy religious person who thinks that they can get to God in their own way, they fall short of God. You know, also the rebel rouser falls short of God in every way. So whether you're religious or moral or rebel rouser, you fall short of God. This is the purpose in which Christ came as God-man to die for our sins because there's no way, whether we've been a rebel rouser or whether we've been a moral person, We've been a religious person and kept all the rules that none of us measure up. None of us make the cut. And this is what the book of Romans teaches us in the first three chapters. And then it teaches us that we need a Savior. We need Christ to die on a cross for our sins. See, He died not just to forgive us of our sins. He died because God demanded justice on our sins and we could never repay God for that. So Christ came and met God's just demands. And he died for our sins. And then chapter 4 reminded us that we have to believe. Remember, Abraham believed by faith. And that faith was credited to him. It was given to him by faith. But listen, it's at that point, some of us say, okay, God's done. I've got my salvation. I'm going to heaven. Things are well. God's done with me. I'm just going to go live my life the way I want to live my life. And God says, no, 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 no. I want to conform you. I want to continue to conform you to the image of my son Jesus. I want to sanctify you. I want to grow you. And so chapters 6 through 8 are really about God growing us in the truth. To be conformed to his image that people around you might look around and go, something's different there. That God is at work there and he gives us the spirit of God. He gives us the Holy Spirit to change us. And you come to the end of chapter 8 and it looks like he's going to start going into some application and then Paul takes a kind of a time out. And we don't understand why he takes a time out, but we have to go back and look at what was going on in first century. In the first century Roman church, there's a scenario here. Do you remember in Romans 1 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. 
So this gospel message, this beautiful gospel message that brings salvation, it has power to change people. But here's the experience. If you're in first century, what you're noticing is, is that the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, many of them, most of them have rejected the Messiah, Jesus. And so if you're looking around, the question would be, if this gospel is really so powerful, and Jesus is so great, why is it that so few people are believing in him? This is the question that Paul takes the time out in chapters 9 through 11 to answer. And you know where he goes? He goes to the sovereignty of God. God's sovereign plans over all things that he works in all things. And then he goes in chapter 10 to the other side of that, man's responsibility. Try putting those together. It's pretty difficult. And the responsibility we have before God. And then you come to chapter 11. And he's finally built this question up. And he's finally going to answer the question that he poses at the beginning of chapter 9. So we come to Romans 11. And the point here is that God will deliver on his promises to his people. He will deliver for them. He will accomplish his purposes. But there's no tracking number. Because the people are going, when's that going to happen? And it's not happening. So you're going to see in this chapter God's gracious promises, his mysterious purposes, and how he works, even in ways, that, in ways and wisdom that you and I wouldn't do it that way. And then you're going to see Paul's response. His response to how amazing God is, how unsearchable he is, which means that he doesn't understand all the things that God is doing, and yet he does something anyway. And so let's look at it. Romans 11, this is really important. It's really important because you and I live in a really broken world, and we have things that happen to us all the time where we're, it, it stresses our belief that God will make all things right one day. But this is what we believe as Christians. We believe that God will make all things right, and this is the beauty of what you see in Romans chapter 11. So we're going to work through this uh, chapter a little bit. And go from there. So let me read it. Um, I'm going to stop as we go to, to make some points. And then we'll move toward some application. I'm going to start in the end of chapter uh, 10. In verse 21. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Old Testament Israel disobey. They turn their back on God. But the, Paul poses the question, chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's asked a lot of questions in the book of Romans, rhetorical questions that he will answer. Has he rejected his people? By no means. For I myself, and he gives three evidences to this. First, his own example. For I myself, Paul, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. He's clearly talking about Jewish people here a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What do you know about Paul? Like, this is the guy who's the persecutor of Christians. He's Jewish, and he's persecuting Christians. He was in the middle of the stoning and death of Stephen. This guy hated Christians. He was a terrorist against Christians. And yet he's saying, here's the evidence that God's not done with Israel. Me, for one. I was the guy that was killing Christians. But I'm a Jew, and I believe in the Messiah. I believe in Jesus. So there's your first evidence that God's not done with the people of Israel. The second one is this. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If you know Romans, you see this idea of foreknowledge a couple of chapters before this in chapter 8. 
those who he foreknew, he predestined. And we often think of foreknowledge, and I said it a few months ago, and we often think of foreknowledge as just facts about people that God knows will happen in the future, but there's nowhere in Scripture which that's only what God does. Surely God knows facts about people that will happen in the future. He knows that. But in Romans 8, it says, for whom? For whom I, pre- whom I foreknew. So it's relational. God knew them. He knew them before. This is a relational term, so it's not just knowledge about. It's that he knew them, and he called them, and he predestined them. And so the second evidence here that God has not done with Israel is is that he's made them promises and he doesn't renege on those promises. For I myself am a Jew. God has not rejected his people. And then he gives a third example. He says this, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel because almost all of Israel in Elijah's day had rejected the message of the prophet, prophet and were worshiping other gods. And he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, this is Elijah's perspective. They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. So Elijah's limited perspective is, there's nobody left to follow you except for me. That's all I can see. And what does God say to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, a false god. And so God encourages Elijah and says, no, there's more people There's more people who believe in me like you. So too at the present time, there's a remnant. And how are they chosen? They're chosen by grace. There's always a connection between election, God's election of people, and grace. It's not our doing. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love the song we sang. Grace on top of grace. And then he shares a bit about Israel's history. Look at it in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, so there was a remnant, but the rest were hardened as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see, ears that they would not hear, down to this very day. What's going on with that? God's doing this action. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here's your thought that comes out of your first thought that comes out of this text. Your first truth is this. The sovereign God of grace is committed to his people despite their failures. He's committed to them despite their failures. There will always be a remnant. Listen, God doesn't renege on his promises or care for them any more than he does you because you fail him or you turn from him. That's the great hope here you see about Israel. That's true in your life as well. Even when you turn, he still has a remnant. He still cares. He's still committed to his people despite their failures because he knows them. He's called them by name. Listen, God won't undo what he's already done. If you are his, you are his. If you're his, you're his. He will deal with all the mess that you bring to the table and he will not reject you. You know this if you have any children, or maybe you've been that child, the, the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. Maybe some of you have been that. I was that. Maybe some of you have that. And there's surely boundaries and there's surely discipline. But here's what a good parent does in those situations. 
as hard as it may be, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. You're still mine. This is God's perspective on his children. If they've come to him, they're his. Just like a good parent with a rogue child, they're still his. You're still his if you know him. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you living in that kind of grace? Even when you fail, are you willing to live in that grace? Or do you just always have this imaginary ledger kind of weighing on top of you? I didn't do that, or I didn't do that, or I did this. So God couldn't love me. God's turned his back on me. You shouldn't live with a ledger. You can live in grace. You can confess and repent and turn because God is a God of grace. But maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you live in license. You know grace so well, you think, that you're willing to live in license, that you'll live your life apart from that grace just in a way because you take it for granted, that you take God's grace for granted. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're, you, you feel like Elijah, and you're saying, who's with me? There's nobody with me. There's so much evil in our world today. Where's the remnant? I don't see it. And maybe God needs to remind you, like he did Elijah, that there is a remnant. There are other people who believe, who believe in the Lord. And perhaps, just perhaps, maybe you're living as a Christian outside of Christian community. So you can't see that there are people who believe, that there are people that you could walk with. I've got a picture here of Ian and Morgan. They just got married last night in College Station. We were up late. Last night, celebrating them, Ian, Morgan, in the middle. This is their community group at Christ Community Church. These are the people that they do life with. If you look at that, there's uh, a married couple that doesn't have kids. There are three or four families in there. This is not even all the community group. And so let me tell you a story about Ian. They're not here today. If they were here, I might tell them to go on. But <laughs> They're not here today, so I'm going to talk about them. Is that how it works? <laughs> maybe, I, maybe you should be here. So, back up two and a half years ago or so, I was here, and I was candidating for the lead pastor position. So, I'm preaching, and I've shared with my previous church that, hey, this is a thing, I'm looking, but, they, but usually in that process where you're at, you don't communicate all those things until after, like you have the job in hand, unless you're kind of crazy. And so, I'm preaching August of 19, and I look out, and Morgan's sitting there. I know Morgan from my previous church, okay? She had moved up here a few months before because Ian, the guy she was dating, lived here. And so after the service, we're talking, and I go up to her. I'm like, hey, don't say anything. I'm going to talk to the elders tomorrow, okay? Just hold out with me for a few, few more days. And so they've gotten plugged into this church. Their first They both knew me, but let me tell you something. They're not here two and a half years later because they knew me. I mean, that was a good stepping stone. They're not here because they knew me. You know why they're here? Beyond the fact that they can trust the direction and theology of the church, they would say they're here because they've invested. They're here because they've invested in people, and people have invested in them. And you know what? When you're a dating couple in a mostly married place, everybody's trying to get you married, and then you're engaged Engagement is hard. They had like a year-long engagement. You know the beauty of that? When they're saying, hey, are we the only ones that are trying to do this in a God-honoring way? Because we don't see it. You know what they could do in their community group? 
They could talk to people. You know what they were doing when they're trying to struggle through all the challenges of planning a wedding and guest list and stuff like that? They could talk to people. When they're struggling spiritually, there's people around them to love them and care for them. So if you're asking the question, who's with me? With all the evil in today, I'm lonely. Man, there are people in this church that you can do life with that will love you and walk with you. There are people in life that you can invest in and you can pour your life into. That's a beautiful picture of community. Over the last couple of years for Ian and Morgan, they've invested their lives in these people and those people have invested their lives in them. Beautiful picture of community. Well, we've said that God delivers on his promises despite failure. Aren't you glad for that in your own life? I sure am. But for what purpose? For what purpose? What could come from failure that is good? What's God's long-term plan here? Keep looking with me, and we're going to skim through this section, but look at verses 11 through 32. So here's the second question. The second question is, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall, like completely? What does he say? He says the same thing. By no means. He's talking about Israel. Rather, through their trespass, their unbelief, their trespass, their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What in the world? So as to make Israel jealous. For if their trespass means riches for the world, because God loves the world, not just Israel, he's going to use his covenant people, and that's true through all the Bible, the covenant people of God to be a witness to the whole world. That's his point. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean, meaning their return? Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles. So, most of the Roman church in Rome were Gentiles. There were some Jews, but mostly Gentiles. And as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, that's his his calling by God, I magnify my ministry in order that to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. This is not some sinful jealousy. This is a jealousy like the carrot that he's dangling out there that they might believe and they might trust in their Messiah. That's how much he loves them. Think about the people in your life that you want to know Jesus. Thus, save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's just their condition as a whole. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the lump, so is the lump. For if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he's going to go into some horticulture here. So, so look at this picture that he paints. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, i.e. the Jews... Although the wild olive shoot, that's Gentiles. And by the way, when the Bible talks about Jews and Gentiles, it's just Jews and then everybody else, you and me, most of us, I think. The wild olive shoot, that's the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root. That's the promise. That's a patriarchal promise of what God's going to do. Of the olive tree. There's one olive tree. There's one olive tree with Jews and Gentiles who are grafted in. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. This is the promises of God. 
Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, Gentiles, he's talking to them, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and the severity of God, the severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too were cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. Look at that. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, From what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? A lot there. A lot to talk about. A lot of pages has been written about this text here. Did they stumble to completely fall? What's God's answer? No. I promised them, these are my purposes. Think about this purposes. They've rejected God. And so now the Gentiles have also come in, which has always been God's plan from Genesis 12, when he called Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, through your seed, Christ. It's always been God's intention. The gospel has always been his intention, not just for Jews, but for you and I, all of us. By faith, that's how people come to know God, through Christ. But its purpose is this jealousy teaser teaser back to Israel. You ever, as a kid or maybe an adult, you ever played with a boomerang? And and I'm not going to pretend to know the physics of this deal because I tried to listen and I'm like, okay, I'm confused. (laughs) Boomerang, what does it do? It's, It's the coolest thing. You throw it really hard. And it comes all the, it's supposed to come all the way back to you. And there's these things like lift and torque that happens in such a way, if you throw it hard enough, it will just gradually come all the way back to you. And I think this is what God's plan has been. That he's come to the Jews and then he's thrown his mercy out. He's thrown his mercy out to the rest of the world, to Gentiles like you and me, that we might come in and be grafted in. But ultimately it's coming back. It's coming back. They've rejected him, but he's coming back. And then you continue to look here at verse 25. Walk with me. And it's a long passage. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentiles. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. So he's going to explain the mystery. It's been a mystery. Here's the mystery explained. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, in this way, that's important, all Israel will be saved. It's not that every ethnic Jew will be saved, but in this way, those who come back. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I make, take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Meaning, his promises will be, are sure. To Israel, to Gentiles, to the church, they're sure. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you that they always may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy 
on all. This is a little bit difficult to unwrap. I mean, there's questions here about who is Israel. Some people believe that Israel from this point is just the church. It's Gentiles. It's Jews. Some people believe that. Other people believe that there is, from that point forward, there is a future in ethnic Israel. There's some future where more people will come to faith in Jesus. The other question that comes out of this is, when does the fullness of Gentiles come in? I think most people would say that before Jesus returns, the fullness of the Gentiles is the church and the fullness of them come in at that point. And what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? I don't think it's talking about every single ethnic Jew. So my take is this, and there's different takes in the room. My take is this, that this is referring in some way or form uh, to ethnic Israel. And I think there's a future before Christ returns, and I think you see this in the book of Revelation, there's a, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, there's a future before the return of Christ where you see a lot of Jewish people coming to know Jesus. Do they come to know Jesus just because they're Jews and God just says to them, all right, you're grafted in? Absolutely not. They come to faith in Christ like everyone else. And those people make up the church with Gentiles like you and me. So that's one mistake that people make to just look at this and say, are you saying that God just dubs them okay (laughs) as if they don't have to come to faith in Jesus? Absolutely not. That's one of the problems. One of the other problems that comes out of this is what I would call replacement theology. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, God has replaced, I think that's bad terminology, replaced Israel with Gentiles and the church And I think that's bad theology too, because there are surely more people who are Jewish that are coming to faith. And so we're grafted in to one olive tree, both Jews and Gentiles. There's great unity in that. There's great unity in that. God doesn't play favorites in that way. It's a beautiful picture. There's no replacement theology. A lot of stuff there, but the idea in this whole section is this. Let me give it to you. Has God's plan, here's the point, if, if, if you glossed over all of that, has God's plan failed? No. His plan has not failed. Will his plan fail? What Paul is saying here is no. His eternal purposes will come to pass. That's the truth that you can hang on to. Nobody believes in whatever position you have there that God doesn't keep his promises. Everybody believes that God keeps his promises. His plan will come to pass. God will finish what he started. So your second idea is this. The sovereign God of mercy even uses failure to bring more people to himself. He can even use failure to bring more people to himself. The boomerang example. I think it's interesting the way that God talks about jealousy. Let me just ask you in your own life, was there anybody in your life, if you know Jesus, before you knew Jesus, was there anybody in your life that you just looked at their life and went, man, why do they live that way? There's something attractive about the way that person lives their life. I want to find out more, and you come to find out they're a Christian and they know Jesus. That there's this jealous teaser in that. That's my, that was my experience. I grew up in the church, and I saw it, didn't know Jesus. I went off to college, and I can tell you four or five different people that I'm like, 
man, I don't react to that situation, that same situation the way they do. They handle that way better than me. And then I keep watching, going, man, they, they really actually care for their friend. They're not just people that go out and party with their friends and then see them the next weekend. Like, they care for one another. Has there anybody been like that in your life? Well, you saw that and God used that to bring you to faith, the example of somebody else. I think this is what God is doing here with the Gentiles to, to tease them back to their roots. So the God of mercy can even use failure to tease that back. You know, you see this, and we'll take out all the Jew-Gentile of this, but you see this in an interesting way in the book of Acts. Do you remember when Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel and they get thrown in jail in Philippi? They're persecuted. They get thrown in jail. And yet, what are they doing? They're singing. (laughs) They're singing to God. And you remember the jailer? Remember the jailer in that cell? His response is, he's watching this situation. How can you be persecuted like that and sing? (laughs) What must I do to be saved? That's what he says to Paul and Silas. That's amazing. See, God will use people in your life. Maybe he's done that. And he will use even you. Maybe you don't believe this, but God can use you to do that in somebody else's life as well. To let them taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that great? How has God used your failure as a witness to himself? Perhaps you have a testimony that's deep and dark. Maybe you don't, and that's God's providence, but maybe you do. And you can relate to people who you're trying to share the gospel with in ways that other people can't, and God is using your failure to lead people closer to Christ. That's exactly what God can do. Is your life a teaser for others to watch the movie of your life more closely to taste and see? So we've seen the promises of God. Paul's saying, hey, the promises of God will happen. They're gonna happen. God's gonna come through on what he said he will come through with. Not only that, even though it's mysterious how God works in his purposes, He will bring about his electing purposes. He will do it. How does Paul respond to both of those things? Look at verses 33 through 36. And you need to underline this. You need to spend some time looking at Paul's response to even things he doesn't understand about God. Look at it. Verse 33. Oh, the depth. He's blown away. He's humbled. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying, I don't have that wisdom. I don't have that knowledge. He's looking at God's character, that God is all wise, that he knows what's best. He's the best counselor. He doesn't need any counselors. His knowledge is full. Mine's not. That's what Paul's saying. How unsearchable are his judgments. I can't understand all this. They're unsearchable. He's finite. Paul is finite. God is infinite. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And then he quotes two passages. Verse 34 is a quote of Isaiah 40. He says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Here's the situation in Isaiah chapter 40. Big bad Babylon is coming against the Israelites and they are scared. 
They don't know what to do. And God shows up and he says, you don't need to be scared. I can handle the Babylonians. For who has known the mind of the Lord? So it's his power. In verse 35, you see, or who has given a gift to him that he, that, that he might be repaid? This is a quote from Job. Remember later in Job, where Job is questioning God? And God doesn't say like one or two things. He asked like 60 questions of Job. Where were you? He doesn't answer his questions, his doubts. He doesn't answer them fully. He just poses like 60 questions to Job. Where were you? You see, this speaks to the wisdom of God. Even when we look at a situation and go, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would never have done it that way. How does that thing that you're doing connect with your purposes and your plans? I don't see it. Listen, Paul, Paul is able to get to a place where he's saying, I don't understand all your mysterious purposes and how you're using Gentiles to bring Jews back. All the, I don't understand all that. But you know what? It doesn't make me critique you more, God. It makes you, me worship you more because you are so far beyond me. Man, that will preach in our lives, won't it? And that's hard. It's not as though you can't doubt. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to hear that. There are doubts that we have about God's plans and God's purposes. But at the end of the day, the end of the day, he's beyond us. His ways aren't necessarily our ways. And the great example of Paul here is he still worships. Here's your thought. Your last thought. God's gracious promises and mysterious purposes deserve our praise. Not just our critique. Can I ask you, do you embrace God's promises and purposes even when you don't understand it all? Even when you don't have all the data that you want to have, can you give Him praise? That's tough. Man, and it's especially tough for some of us in the room, maybe that your first words when you came out into this world weren't mommy, daddy, ball, they were why. Anybody there? As the four or five-year-old who asked 50 questions about every single thing, and as an adult, perhaps out of fear or control, you've got to have all the data to believe something, to know something, to feel comfortable because maybe there's fear or maybe there's a desire to control. This is hard for you. This is hard for me. I'm that type of person. If I have an idol, it's control. And the beauty of this passage that you need to take to heart, that you need to memorize, that you need maybe in your bathroom right there as you begin your day and you're looking in the mirror. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Man, this is a great help. This is a balm of help to you when you don't understand all that God's doing, but you're still trying to believe that what he is doing is good and right, and ultimately will bring him glory and bring you good. Amen? God will deliver. Talked about Amazon in the beginning. Talked about selection, wide selection, 
talked about no shipping costs, talked about trust, but there's one more thing that I really love about Amazon. I don't have to search for anything. I don't have to go work. <laughs> I, don't have to go, I don't have to go work and find it myself. It comes to me. I can rest knowing that I don't have to go find it, search for it. I don't have to worry about being empty-handed when I come back home. I don't have to waste my time, my precious time. <laughs> Let me say it this way. I can rest in someone else's work. Can I tell you that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because these, in a sense, these are smaller promises made to God's people that he will, he's telling us, he will bring about. He's going to do what he says he's going to do, even if you can't see it. But that, those promises is rooted in a deeper promise and deeper purposes. And that deeper purpose is that God has purposed and promised through his son the finished work of Christ. I can rest in someone else's work. I can rest in the finished work of Christ that he's died on a cross for my sins. There's no way I can pull that off. There's no way you can pull that off. The work is finished. The debt is paid. Your sins can be forgiven by faith in Christ. Your takeaway today is this. You can rest in God's gracious promises and merciful purposes that produce praise in God's people. Let me say that one more time. You can rest. This is what Romans 11 is teaching. Christian, you can rest. You can rest in God's gracious promises. Even with your failure. And you can rest in his merciful purposes even when you can't understand it. You can't make sense of it all because it produces praise in God's people. Let me pray.